Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Friends Podcast, where people who are in active recovery from addiction share their unique experience in the hope that listeners still in active addiction can identify with their stories and find possibly find hope for their own recovery. We are not affiliated or do we speak for any 12-step programs or any other addiction or recovery-based entity. The words spoken here reflect the experiences of our guests and not the opinion of their chosen path to recovery. I wrote that myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you look at it after the episode. All right, so tonight uh, we have uh, another guest on the show. Um, AJ has uh, done us the favor of coming on and sharing his experience how are you i'm pretty good thanks for having me oh i'm glad you could come um (laughs) i was uh i was looking forward to this because i always always resonate with the things you say in the secret meetings that we attend (laughs) (laughs) that will not be mentioned yeah or could be (laughs) (laughs) just remember what i said at the beginning and we should be fine (laughs) Um, so yeah, um, how you been? I've been pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. How's, uh, how's life? You're, you're a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga teacher. Uh, I'm in business school right now. Um, and I'm an entertainer. Okay. So I'm producing a couple shows. I keep myself pretty busy. Wow. So you write and direct and produce? Yep. Wow. And (laughs) subtle, you know? Yeah. I I uh, I direct the ballet. I perform in it. I do the lights. I <laughs> <laughs> all of that. But don't <laughs> actor and director. Um, so um, so yeah, um, you know. So on here we basically. I know you said you heard some of the episodes, but uh, yeah, basically it's uh, come free, free. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, free form. Is that right? Yeah. Freeform. Tell your story. Non-linear. Yeah. Just kind of you know start. Tangential. I can't say that word. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, maybe start wherever you feel is relevant to start. Um, In the beginning. Probably at the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) A very good place to start. Yeah. (laughs) The sound of music. (laughs) Is that a a sound of music lyric? Yeah, that's one uh, of the songs from Do Re Mi or Mm. whatever. Do a deer, a female deer, that. Ray. We start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was born, turns out. Oh. Um, <laughs> not hatched. Birthed, not hatched. Know, jury's still out. <laughs> I, might, I might have just descended from another planet. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Um, I guess, I don't know. I grew up in a pretty rural environment for the most part. Um, and I think that that, like, um, I don't know, that informed a lot of my worldview when I was younger, um, I guess I can talk about a little bit. I, um, I wasn't necessarily raised in any sort of, uh, religious upbringing, but, uh, I, um, my mother got remarried when I was maybe, 
I, she was 11. I, she wasn't 11. I was 11. Um, <laughs> Your mother um, remarried when she was 11. Yeah. She so, had you when she was yeah. eight. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 11, my mother uh, got remarried. And uh, as, as a result of that, I ended up in this uh, large German Catholic family. My stepfamily is this large German Catholic family. Um, and I was really drawn to Catholicism. Um, mm-hmm. So but when I was like 14 years old, I told my mom I wanted to convert to Catholicism. From? Uh, from nothing. Okay. So. Um, but it was like I wanted to do the catechism and the... Uh, I, went, I, I ended up being like baptized uh, and confirmed and taking my first communion like all in the same like month. Uh, oh, wow. I had a similar thing. Yeah. Well, I got baptized in first communion t- together when I was like eight or nine. Yeah. Because yeah. my mom Little decided to, like, <laughs> you know, appease my grandmother, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think what I really liked about, <clears throat> excuse me, what I liked about Catholicism was just that there was um, some semblance of order, mm-hmm. right? There was some some kind of structure, um, and that gave me a sense of stability. Um, which is something I never really had. We kind of moved around a lot uh, before that. Um, and so my mom was, wasn't really objectionable about anything like that, but I did, I started going to Catholic mass, like during the week, it was like me <laughs> and like, uh, like the blue haired old ladies at 7am on Wednesdays and Thursdays on your own. You know? Oh yeah. On just your like own. my own volition. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I could say maybe one of my first obsessions, right? No. <laughs> That is really weird. Yeah, it's really strange <laughs> that I was like, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> this is the cool thing I'm going to do, yeah. right? My after school activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but did, it was so really did before you, school. But. Did you like, so you, did you go to catechism? I ended up kids? teaching catechism. <laughs> oh, wow. Did you play the, 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 the organ at services? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I did have to sing in the choir a couple of times, oh. but yeah. I think something that really drew me to Catholicism too was that there was like this tenet that like, I think somewhere subconsciously, like it was like in Catholicism, they mentioned something about being gay. Whereas like in all other kinds of faiths, like it was really avoided. Yeah. At least from my perception as like a young person. Um, And I didn't necessarily have a fully formed realization that I was a gay person, but uh, I knew that Catholicism was like, you're not condemned as long as you stay celibate. And I was like, oh. okay, as long as there's a rule here that I can follow, then I think I'll be okay. Wow, you know? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, like, there wasn't... Uh, they didn't say you had to not be gay. Yeah, they just said you had to be celibate. Wow, I see. I was unaware of that. And I was like, deal. Yeah. Because can- <laughs> <laughs> most Protestant bo- Protestants believe you got to go to camp. You gotta, yeah. You have to be converted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you gotta flip that pancake. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I get that reference. <laughs> I don't know if I get it either. I made it up. Um, <clears throat> yeah. The, but yeah, Catholicism was really interesting as like a mode. But I ended up actually teaching uh, <laughs> like catechism kindergarten mm. with like uh, this woman who I started like dating. Oh. Um, which was just such an interesting time. I don't know. Being 14 is an interesting time, but then being 16 is even more interesting. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> she ended up inviting me to uh, a Halloween party. And that's when I remember drinking for the first time and drinking like really working for me. Mm. Um, 
I think a lot of people who uh, are of our ilk tend to, uh, or at least have some relationship with the Boone's Farm. Yeah, that's um, me. <laughs> but yeah, I drank that bo- that strawberry Boone's Farm. That's not what they were giving at mass, huh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> definitely not. No. That's the blood. That's the blood. <laughs> pink blood of Christ. <laughs> the Chablis of Christ. Um, yeah, but I remember being at that party and like, uh, I remember drinking, and like the I felt like the world was the same as the world I, had, I was like accustomed to. But, like, it was, like, suddenly okay that I was, like, there. That I was, like, in it. I think throughout my entire life, I'd always kind of just felt like I was sort of on the outside looking in. um, Or that, like, I wasn't really allowed to be places. And if I was, it was some sort of hoax. And I was waiting for, like, somebody to pull the rug out from under me or something like that. That That's a perfect description of that because I relate to that. (laughs) I've always felt like that. Like, I always say that my... I did, always felt like I wasn't supposed to be at my grandmother's house for some reason. Oh, like you're not allowed? Like I just wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> like I felt like I was always intruding or imposing. And yeah. then like I maybe, I don't know if it's the same, <laughs> the same phenomenon. Yeah. But, but. Well, I think it's like this, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, like I'm, I, I was deeply uncomfortable with any kind of like right to take up space mm-hmm. in the world. Um, <clears throat> and I was particularly fearful of like men. Um, and like men who were my peers, there's a lot of sort of, I don't know, toxic masculinity in rural life that like, uh, bleeds in. But I just remember feeling warm and fuzzy and being able to tell jokes. And these people that I was afraid of were like laughing and accepting me. Um, they were willing to be, I don't know, like I was allowed to be in the room and it was really cool. Um, and so I drank a lot of Boone's Farm. Yeah. You were basically allowed to be in the room by yourself. Because nobody else was like not allowing you to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in the room the whole time, turns yeah. out. But like, <laughs> yeah. But I ended up drinking a lot and I uh, I drove home. That was my 1995 Dodge Neon. It was my mm. first car. Um, <clears throat> and when I got home, my mother observed that I had been drinking and she was very strict and she was not pleased with me. Um, but she... Uh, she made some comment, uh, about me ending up just like my father, (laughs) (laughs) which like, uh, might, it's probably, you know, uh, upon, uh, inspection might be a resentment my mother might have toward my father. Mm, mm. (laughs) Tell her about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to let her know. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, so I was grounded. Um, my mother was really strict. Um, and then, you know, I, (laughs) Surprise to everyone, uh, things didn't work out with my Catholic girlfriend. <laughs> so you say you were 16 and she you, you described her as a woman, so she was older than you? Uh, I would describe, I'm a feminist, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to describe any woman uh, who isn't a girl as <laughs> a girl. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think that's an outside issue. <laughs> yeah. But she, so she was your age. Yeah, she was my, okay. she was, I think maybe she was a year older than me. No. I'm not really actually sure, but maybe she was 17, I was 16. I think that's true. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask her. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but I, I was 17 when I met and started dating my first boyfriend. Um, and that also was when I started uh, 
putting on lots of makeup so that I could get into bars with anybody's ID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, da -da 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 -da, drag queen. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's when I discovered uh, how useful drinking was in those particular types of social situations. I think it's really important to talk about um, just because I think that everybody has sort of this sort of awakening or this sexual coming of age or anything like this. But for in, in particular, there's like a layer of secrecy, especially in the 90s, that was like placed over the gay male identity, especially, but just the queer identity in general. Yeah. Um, that like all of the situations where you were totally allowed to like be yourself, to be sexually validated, to be in any kind of community um, and to like live with any sort of truth. Those situations are like absolutely saturated in drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Um, which like, I don't think that um, being gay made me an alcoholic. Um, I just think it, uh, you know, it's an excellent primer. Yeah. <laughs> like, those situations are really particular. So I'm, I'm often really, um, I guess, I don't know, sad that uh, it's still sort of the way that it is, like the way that people find community um, in the LBGT community. Um is a lot of times a lot of bar culture. Yeah. Um, and so if you have any sort of predisposition towards an uh, addictive personality or anything like you that. You find it easier. Yeah. You know. It's definitely like right there, ready for you. Um, but that's when I really got into, uh, you know, drinking rum for the dollar drink nights and yeah. all of that stuff. And I started sneaking out of the house and all of that. And I think the jury's still out on whether or not my mother kicked me out of the house because I was gay. Or if she kicked me out of the house because I was just such an unreasonable person, you know, yeah. like I was going out all the time. I wasn't following rules. I was completely unmanageable. Um, and so that happened and I finished out my senior year of high school. Um, and then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which if you've ever been to Atlanta, Georgia, then you know that there's no shortage of drugs there. Yeah. Especially so, for drag queens. So, <laughs> so you rural georgia or no rural michigan michigan yeah okay. um and then i just uh i well my boyfriend at the time he uh he was 19 i was 17 uh -huh. that's an older man robin um he's robin cradles <laughs> he was in community college so oh. you know he was very cosmopolitan <laughs> um and so he, on spring break, a couple of friends and he drove to Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, and on their way through Flor to Florida, they stopped in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was like, there's a gay bookstore in this gay neighborhood. And like gay people can hold hands on the street there. Isn't that and crazy? Like, that just uh, 1990, whatever. Yeah, that was that was 1999. Yeah. Wow. And that was like a I guess it's still like that in, in, in the country, though where it's like just backwards. Thinking. Well, if you, if you, if you want to date it, that was like three years after Ellen came out of the closet. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that was a big, big thing. Yeah. yeah. Or wow. something like that. I mean, it was around that time, Wow. but yeah. yeah, a lot's happened since then. I think the world's a little bit different, but yeah. Um, where it's like, I think, you know, at that time, like gay people were not mainstream conversation at all. Mm. Whereas, like, it's very commonplace now, I think, even into the reaches of rural areas. Um, but, yeah, that was his impetus. He was like, 
you know, gay people can hold hands on the street there. Like nobody's throwing things at them or Uh not being arrested or anything like that. And I was like, perfect. That's great. Let's move there. You know, that Uh, must've been hella comforting too. You know, just the thought of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so literally the day after my high school graduation, I got in my car and I drove to Atlanta, Georgia. I arrived there. I was actually, I stayed in like a little apartment in Kennesaw outside of the city um, but when I arrived in Atlanta, I had $34 in my pocket <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to make it in the big city. <laughs> oh, $35. But yeah, uh, my, the boyfriend and I ended up breaking up on September 11th, 2001. Interestingly wow. enough, it was the day. The day. Yeah. It was, a, it was, you know, subtle. It was a subtle day. <laughs> um, it was like a little bit after midnight that we had like decided that it was time to break up. And, oh, and then so. It- yeah. So when he uh, he got up and went to work and uh, we had like drank a bunch of martinis breaking up at a TGI Fridays. <laughs> and like uh, so I woke up really hung over and I turned on the television and the, it, the world was ending. Literally. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. It was nuts. Um, and that was like the first time I'd ever really broken up with someone. It was the first time I'd ever like lived outside of my, uh, you know what I mean? Like it must I'd, have been so surreal. I didn't know what to do. And I was hundreds of miles away from anything I'd ever known as home, you know? And that, you said you were 19? Yeah, I was 19 yeah, at that time. Like, I was 18 the, at I think that we're time. the same age. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I was right out of high school. It was like my first year out of high school. Because I, well, I graduated in 01, so May. Yeah. And then I, and then, it yeah, we are the same age. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that happened. And then I, I lived with him for a little while and that's when my drinking got kind of really <laughs> kind of problematic, <laughs> you know? Um, but I was just really upset all the time and I didn't really know how to handle, um, anything that I was adjusting to. So, um, I went to more bars and that's where I started like hanging out with crystal meth and doing all kinds of mm-hmm. excellent <laughs> gay party drugs that were so super fun. Um, and <clears throat> I remember coming home to the apartment that we shared one night and he was like, we had a futon that was like in our bed or whatever. Uh, and there was like another person in the bed with him and I was like, whoa. And then there was also like an entire fifth of rum on the kitchen counter. So it was like, I'm either going to kill these two people or I'm going to drink this entire bottle of rum, which I did. Uh. Um, but that was one of the hallmarks of, uh, I think my, the beginnings of that sort of coping mechanism as a behavior. Yeah. And then, uh, I, you know, uh, I moved out from that apartment like one day while he was at work. It was like really, uh, very dramatic and, <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting to even recall all of this at this point, but, um, that's, you know, I ended up working at a little gay bar. I don't even know if it's still there. It was called the red chair and I was underage, uh, at the time. And so it was like, I would have to like sneak drinks and it was a lot easier to do drugs than it was to drink in the bar where I worked. Cause everybody knew that I was underage, things like that. Um, and so I just got into all kinds of like drug fun. I ended up at one point, um, and like in a K-hole in the backseat of a cab and the cab driver had, I don't know exactly how, but like must've just like pulled me out of the backseat of the cab and like left me in front of my house. Yeah. Cause I like came to and like the sun was up and I was like in all of my glorious, like 2001 party garb God. and just like Jinkos probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was special. Um, and then, you know, at the time I, I lived with these two women who were, <clears throat> you know, like you know, young women who are really, 
I don't know, trying to get their lives together or something. Um, I don't know what people are supposed to do when they're like 19 and 20 years old. <laughs> I know what I did. Yeah. Well, that was, was like the height of, well, I don't know if it was the height, but that time was like raves. Oh yeah. There was a definite, there was a, there was a place in Atlanta called the globe. Um, I don't know if like someone is probably listening to this <laughs> podcast being like, yeah, the globe. That's great. <laughs> Um, I don't know if we're that widespread yet, but maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe in the future when we're real popular, if somebody wants to check out the old episodes. <laughs> Currently, the, I'm, I doubt anybody archives. out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that um, I forgot where I was. What were we talking about? Uh, the, your two roommate girls getting. Oh there. Yeah. yeah, and so they kind of they sat me down at one point, and they were like. We think that you might have like some kind of like a drug problem, and I reacted to that like they were electrocuting me or something. Uh-huh. Like I like like lit up, you know. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I like went to work that day. Like went all like I was like, oh my god, uh-huh. I need to figure this out or whatever. So I ended up uh, crafting this brilliant lie uh, that my father had cancer. And that I needed to get home as soon as possible. And like, I couldn't work anymore. I just needed to figure out how to get home. And then of course I called my dad and said like, I'm living with these awful women. The apartment like market in Atlanta is insane. I can't afford anything. You need, can you just bail me out? I need to come home. Uh, so he sent me, he wired me money, Western union. And I like figured out, I don't even remember. I might've flown. I might, I think I left all of my stuff in Atlanta and just like flew to like Flint, Michigan. And my dad drove to pick me up. <laughs> wow. And so you, you said your dad had cancer. Yeah. My dad to this day does not have cancer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is a brilliant lie, <laughs> but I, I, you know what I mean? I, I positioned it in a way that there was like no question. Of yeah. Like, I think I've heard you say this actually before yeah. now that I'm thinking about it. It sounds so familiar. And like, you know, in hindsight, I don't think that they believed me at all. I think they were like, what the fuck ever it takes to get you out of this <laughs> It's probably fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that ended up like it was the summer. Uh, at that point, I was 20 years old. Yeah. And that summer I lived with my dad. And my dad has been sober since I was, I don't know, seven years old or so. So like there's no alcohol in the house. I have spent the last like two years of my life doing copious amounts of amphetamines and uppers and things wow. like that. And I didn't really know how, uh, how to sleep like a normal person. So I'd hang out downstairs. My dad has like elaborate, like satellite television of all kinds or whatever. So I'd like watch TV, but like, it was like, I was so restless and I got the the bright idea to, uh, drink the cough syrup in the, in the cabinet that was, uh, in the kitchen. And I started obsessively drinking cough syrup that summer. Like it was so nuts. And like, uh, I like had a little cough syrup and then of course I didn't go to sleep right away. So I was like, well, I need more cough syrup. Uh, um, so like what kind, <clears throat> like, I don't know, just standard, just like standard DM or something. Yeah. That's the crazy dreams. A lot of crazy dreams now. I don't even remember. Like <laughs> I just like the, I would drink the cough syrup <laughs> because I, I don't, I don't even know if it even really had an effect so much as I just believed it did or like it it would help me sleep. And then I realized that I had drank all the cough syrup and I was going to need to replace it. And I also needed to not get caught. So I like sort of gauged where the cough syrup might've been when I 
initiated this bottle of cough syrup drinking business. And then I started this whole racket where I would like go to Walgreens. Like after my dad had gone to work, I would like walk there and buy like four or five bottles of Robitussin because I knew I was going to need to drink this cough syrup before bed. And then I would just make sure that there was a cough syrup that I was like at the right level (laughs) (laughs) which like i don't know why i didn't just like buy and hide cough syrup and and leave that one alone yeah like (laughs) (laughs) probably because i'm an alcoholic drug addict (laughs) that might be why um but yeah it was feverish and then i would find all kinds of ways to organize the trash so it wasn't like 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 little boxes of robitussin (laughs) everywhere um and like or i would like take it around the block around the corner and like try and burn it you know like all these things like as if like someone was really trying to figure yeah. me out you know <laughs> um that was really intense but uh that i, I remember that <laughs> interestingly enough uh i had forgot that that had ever happened until the first time someone ever asked me to tell my story and i like started talking about oh, the cough those are great those, like, those what <laughs> that's crazy i had a cough for a period too like i would drink a lot of it to pass out yeah, and, and so like, and every time, and I don't know how I got to where like I drank it on the regs, but I know that whenever I would try to detox myself off pain pills, I would buy a bunch of it. I would get a bunch of Imodium <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and like Nyquil, and I would just chug Nyquil and take Imodium and watch Netflix and try to detox myself. And then, so like, I t- like that you literally just did the robot right now. I just want to. I want. Um, well, yeah, I want. I want, I want our, the listeners at home to know that you. Well, just I'm made full a of robot. mannerisms. So, it's like, <laughs> so they don't. They don't translate over the, the audio. But, um, so yeah, that's something I did, and, to this day, I won't buy cough syrup with alcohol. Oh yeah. Because I'm kind of like I don't know. Just, you know, I remember go- leaving treatment once and, uh, for a pass. And I went to the grocery store and I'm sitting there because I was feeling sick and I'm looking at the cough syrup and it hadn't occurred to me that maybe I shouldn't have it. But in that moment, I went, maybe I should call somebody. And I called somebody and I said, hey, I'm, a, I'm sick and I'm looking at this cough syrup and it has alcohol. Should I get it? And the guy was like, absolutely not. So, <laughs> so then ever since then, I just don't get it, which is yeah. fine. The non-alcoholic stuff works. Well, I mean, I still have the traces of a cough and not even last week, you know, like uh, I've been in recovery for over three years. And like uh, even last week, I was like I had this horrible cough and I was just like, what am I going to do? I was so (laughs) like frustrated or whatever. And it didn't even occur to me that like there are probably other alternatives besides cough syrup to help you with your like expectorant issue or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm coughing, of course, but um, I just was like, it was so bad. And I thought like, I'm going to have to like call the doctor and like ask for like whatever. And then I was like, why don't you just go to the Walgreens and, and see what the they packages. have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like turns out I could get like sugar-free Ricola and uh. like uh, they have like uh, alcohol-free like expectorant stuff and gel caps that you can mm-hmm. just take. So yeah. I'm not even like drinking it. Because I think even the sensation of, like, drinking it from the bottle, which is what I did, would, like, you know what I mean? And it's, like, I don't really, like, live in fear of being triggered in that way. But, like, I'm just, like, "Eh, I don't need to go back. That's not not trying to go backwards I never used the cups, like, to... to The little measuring cup? Like, what's that even for? (laughs) It's not even a large enough dose. Does that protect your fingers (laughs) when you're sewing? Is that what that's for? (laughs) That's what it is. 
silly. <laughs> yeah. Well, after the the summer of cough syrup, <laughs> I decided uh, in one way, in, in, in some way, despite my mother, I was like, I'm going to go to this really expensive school in Chicago and I'm going to show her that I can be successful or whatever. So it was like a really cute um, resentment-fueled move to the Windy City. Uh, and I ended up going to a private school for theater. Um, and it, I moved to Chicago. That was 2003. So that was my 21st birthday. Um, and being a 21 year old freshman, I think automatic automatically gains you some popularity. Um, so I was definitely like the, the, I would run to the store for everybody and this and that. Um, but every single day I went to high school or high school, I went to college just for one year. Um, it was not successful, but I drank whiskey every single day in my coffee. Um, and that was really the first time that I noticed in my peer group that people started looking at me sort of questionably. Like when I would be like waking up in the morning and pouring whiskey in my coffee. I remember my roommate in the dorms, like looked up, he was just, the look on his face was like one of like concern, but also like, just like he was flabbergasted like are you serious you know and i i lashed out at him i was like why why the fuck what are you looking at like i'm i'm getting ready for class and i'm having my fucking coffee and i don't really appreciate the way you're looking at me right now (laughs) so you don't like being called out (laughs) (laughs) it's my favorite (laughs) but yeah and that was like really the first in a series of like i i think about in my alcoholism, I had a lot of social experiences where people who really cared about me would make this face where they like, I mean, they didn't know how they didn't, they didn't know how to offer advice or they didn't know what to say, but it was just like, you could tell that they were in pain because someone they cared about was suffering and they Mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. Um, and like I, those memories, those faces kind of haunt me sometimes still today where it was just like, I just, I, I did, I instilled that in someone else that, yeah area of concern um but it happened a couple of times and it happened uh through a series of where like i ended up having like nobody wanted to live with me you know i like would run out of people and then i would need to get a whole new set of friends until they kind of figured out like that that was i really only had one trick you know (laughs) um and like rent kept getting shorter and showing up kept getting less and all, all those kinds of things. Um, and then it was 2005, 2007. It was 2007 um, when I decided I would go to Howard Brown, which I think still exists. I don't know. I haven't been in Chicago for a while. But it's like the LBGTQ uh, health organization of Chicago. And, like, I had gone to their website, you know, and looked at, like, what is there about. And it's like, if you think that you might have a substance abuse problem, uh, called this number, make this appointment. And I go and I see this guy, uh, and he asks me like, you know, he's like, well, do you think, how much you, do you drink? You know? Um, and I was like, well, not that much, like four or six drinks, like, you know, when I go out, which is like, maybe true. Except like, I drank way more than that when mm-hmm. I wasn't like out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he was like, whiskey oh. in my coffee, right? You left that out. I'm sure. <laughs> I was like, well, while I'm out, which is qualified <laughs> drinking, I drink four to six drinks, which is like, you know, totally Ex- a, a yeah. reasonable amount. <laughs> um, and then he was like, you know, okay, well, you know, it, I, that has to get expensive or whatever. And I was like, I, 
usually spend maybe 40 or $60 when I go out. Um, and then like, I might pick something up after I'm done at the bar or whatever and like spend another $20 or so. And he was like, okay, so you spend 60 to $80 when you go out drinking or whatever. And he's like, how often does that happen? And I was like, well, you know, like maybe like four or five nights a week. <laughs> And like in my mind, I'm like, I'm not gonna say seven. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so like, yeah, it's bad. It's bad whenever like the edited version you give them is still alarming. <laughs> yeah, like five, four to five is not the right answer either, sir. <laughs> yeah. So he gave me a list of uh, meetings for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was like, I hate this guy. He doesn't know. Fo- he doesn't fucking know anything. <laughs> And then he asked me, he's like, do you think that you could make it to bed tonight without taking a drink? And I was like, fuck you, dude. I was uh, like, oh, just like I hated him so much. Um, like, and like, of course, like, why the fuck couldn't I do that? You know? Um, yeah, it was so crazy. <laughs> but like my previous experience with AA, I was like a seven and eight year old. And I would go with my dad on occasion when my dad had custody of us. Like we would go to these things or we'd go to AA dances or things like that. But I was a kid. I didn't really necessarily understand what it was. And of course, anything that like the adults are doing is like not cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was um, that night was the first night since I could probably remember that I actually didn't drink. And I laid in bed and like shook and cried and it was like my roommates were moving. They had chosen to move into a new apartment that I wasn't going to be a part of. And it was like they were starting to pack up because it was like by the end of the week they had a new place and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I and that was the time I went to my first uh, AA meeting in Chicago in 2007. And I went to meetings for maybe three or four months. I picked up a three-month chip. at The, t- the meetings I went to, they only had the three-month chip. Oh. Um, and so I got that chip and then I, uh, I definitely didn't want to talk to anybody or like make any friends. Um, and it was like these gay men's meetings that, and I was just like, everybody here is messed up and they're crazy (laughs) and all this stuff. Um, and then I met this guy, Robin, who I love. Um, and he, it was like this older native American man and he would hold these meetings outside of his house or not outside of his house, inside his house. Um, and he's really notorious in Chicago. Um, but he just had this sort of like a uh, really powerful presence. He was a real, almost like a shaman. Um, and that he would just like hold this space for everybody and he'd run these meetings. And I really didn't understand what was going on, but there was something complex and spiritual about the way that Robin held uh, the room in that way. And he wouldn't let anybody talk in the room unless they admitted that they were powerless over alcohol. Hmm. So like some people would be like, I'm Betsy or whatever. I'm an alcoholic. And he would be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and he would like bang the staff on the floor and he'd <laughs> make people admit that they were powerless. Um, wow. And I just remember thinking like, this guy's crazy. He's definitely my people. Um, and I loved him. And those, those were the meetings that uh, uh, in Chicago that I was like, this guy's cool. I'll go to these meetings. <laughs> um, but I stopped going to meetings maybe four or five months in. And I thought like, ah, I'm, and I went, it, I went it alone. Um, and I remember being really lonely. I didn't date anybody. Um, I had a really hard time relating to people. I just felt like I was sort of, um, 
being punished for all of my bad behavior and that I was in some sort of purgatory, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, I mean, in fairness, kind of how it felt and kind of how it was. Um, And then in 2009, I, uh, I was doing so well that I took a trip to Los Angeles to visit some friends who had just moved. Um, And I decided to drink a beer at the Eagle in Los Angeles during a beer bus. I just had a pint of beer. Um, and then I drank every day for six and a half years after that. Wow. Um, so how long did you have in that little period where it was about a year and a half? Okay. Yeah. A little over a year and a half, um, that I just, I didn't drink. I didn't have anybody to relate to. I wasn't in therapy. Um, I just gone to those meetings a little bit. I hated the gay men meetings and I loved the Robin meetings, but it was like, man, this doesn't really work. I need to figure it out. Um, that was also coincidentally the time when I, uh, did my yoga teacher training. So I became certified as a yoga teacher at that time. Hmm. It was really, even with like, uh, being sort of relatively miserable, like my life still moved forward from the simple act of just not drinking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, once I picked up again, that was March 30th of 2009. I remember the day cause my, uh, coincidentally my best friend from high school also uh, died that day. Uh, <laughs> neat fact, side note. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I remember getting off the plane as soon as I got back and I like picked up a bottle of wine and walked into my apartment and my roommate was like that same concerned face, like, Oh God, what's happening right now? We're like on this road. Right. Um, and so they ended up moving out. I ended up needing to find a new place and, um, Things just sort of progressed from there until I decided that like I didn't want to live in Chicago anymore since all of these people and this whole place were the problem. Winter is so terrible uh, and that's why I drink and everybody's a jerk and everyone's out to get me and all that stuff. So I'm going to leave. I thought I'm going to move to Berlin. I can like live under a bridge in Berlin. Um, and then someone uh, invited me to... Uh, move into their a spare room had opened up in, in New Orleans and I'd never seen New Orleans or knew anything about it. And I was like, sure. <laughs> Sounds like it's warmer, whatever. And then when I got here, I realized that it was like the perfect opportunity for anybody <laughs> with an alcohol problem. I always say, and I think it's really true that if you're looking for rock bottom, New Orleans is more than happy to provide an <laughs> escort. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was about a year of living in New Orleans before I was really brought to my knees. I, it was August, uh, in 2015. So I, uh, I had gone through a slew of really dramatic sort of relationship stuff. And I ended up in this apartment isolated all alone. Um, and I was pounding whiskey. I had a job that, uh, that like took time off the business closed for the summer, which is something that happens in New Orleans, you know? as you know. Um, and so I wasn't working. I didn't have anywhere to go. And I was just drinking handles of Evan Williams green on a floor in in an apartment with no furniture and no air conditioning. Um, and I just was ready to like die there on the floor. Um, and I, I really don't know what happened. I remember like staring down a bottle. I was like laying on the floor on my back and this like ceiling fan was just like clicking. And it was like this rhythmic, like almost annoying, but like in trance, like hypnotizing, just like the ceiling fan clicking. Mm. 
And I remember like looking at the bottle and I was like, if you just drink the rest of that, you don't even have to wake up. And I drank the rest of that. It was warm, fucking piss warm um, whiskey. And then I don't know what happened, but then I don't even know if it was the next day. I like, I came to and I got up and I was like, you're drinking water. And I knew I had, I had made one friend in New Orleans who I knew didn't drink. And I called him and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and he was like, do you want to go to a meeting? And so I said, yeah. And I went to a meeting that day and he, <laughs> uh, he was like, come over to my house after you're done. Cause he didn't go to meetings. He just was somebody who didn't drink. Mm. Um, but I went to the meeting and I sat there and I didn't listen to anything. I watched the clock the whole time. And I just remember my insides felt so pickled. Um, and I felt so disgusting and I didn't want anybody to talk to me or anybody to touch me. And I didn't want to say anything. I just was going to sit there and do my penance. <laughs> um, and, uh, <clears throat> I left that meeting and I went over to my friend's house who I had called and he just asked me if I felt better. And the, the answer was yes. Like it was just the honest answer. Like I did, I felt a little bit better and it was like a, it was just a little bit of leverage in the other direction that sort of set me on a course of deciding that it was time for me to make a change. Wow. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to take a quick break. Uh, <laughs> Intermission. <then> <laughs> And then we'll uh, come back and hear how it went after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, back from break. And uh, so, yeah. I was like, in my mind, I was like <laughs> waiting for like a commercial moment. Do you know, do you ever, do you know the musical Evita? Evita? <clears throat> yeah. She like, Ava Perón did all these like soap like, commercials. Evita, uh, Argentina? Yeah. Like there is no soap, no soap like Zaz, no detergent, lotion or oil with such power in no. the shower. <laughs> no, I don't know. Is that, is that the one that Madonna did that? Yeah, Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> and Antonio Banderas. Yeah. I mean, I didn't watch it. I just remember Evita. <laughs> oh, I I watched it. I was I mean I was I was fourteen. I was also I went on a date with a girl. Oh, I took <laughs> to her to, to, to a, a musical. Vita. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <clears throat> it didn't work out. Yeah. I, li- <laughs> I really dig musicals. I mean, I haven't watched that many, but like I loved Grease. Yeah, obviously classic. And I had <laughs> when we were kids. That was like the the only VH one of the only VHS tapes we had. So we watched it all over and over and over yeah. again. <laughs> And then, well, who was your favorite character from Greece? I mean, I guess uh, John Travolta's character. I guess. Yeah, the main character. Yeah. <laughs> I was a Rizzo gal myself. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I and th- and then I I didn't I didn't I never found the the second one to be that great. It was a completely different movie. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, but then also I I. Uh, Anthony C who's been on this podcast and I were in in treatment together (laughs) as long-term treatment and um, every month we had a chip ceremony where everybody (laughs) would get their chips for the month and a talent portion oh my god so we wrote I want to see this (laughs) we wrote and uh, and performed a musical (laughs) (laughs) 
at Ridge House, which was like, I mean, I thought it was amazing. And it was <laughs> probably one of the best experiences of my life being in a musical. Like That's I would, funny. I would love to perform in musicals, just for the record. If you, want, if you ever need, I like, might, I, I might have some options. Yeah, for you. <laughs> I'll, I'll audition for something. You know, if it's not too crazy. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of uh, burlesque shows that need some stagehands and some kittens. All right. So I you can... just have to wear like uh, some skimpy underwear and like pick up clothes. All right. I might. <laughs> hey, is it? We'll give you a musical number. As long as I get to like, yeah. As long as I get to do something where I connect with the crowd, I think that's the thing that I like. I like doing. Like I do like performing. It's <laughs> awesome. There's something about it. It's like the most amazing experience. Like being on stage, doing something where the crowd's reacting to you. I don't know. I've never like ever, a few of my like, top experiences of my life involve doing some f- sort of performing. Yeah. yeah. You know. I think that there's a lot of um. When well, I think that this this can be a good segue in because you know in my transition from Chicago, to. Uh, New Orleans I you know in the last the last four or five years I was in Chicago in 2012 I was named the king and queen of queer nightlife like uh, I was producing these like really interesting and super fun events um, but inside I was suffering Mm. so much Um, and I, I, I think as an entertainer I just really needed people I needed attention certainly I needed to I needed to know that like my voice was significant and then I mattered. Mm. Um, and I, and somehow I went about that experience trying to kind of um, extract that from people, you know, um, which isn't exactly the way to go about that, obviously. Um, and I can say, you know, that uh, I, I took a long break between, uh, you know, after I got sober before I would start performing again. And uh, now... The experience of performing one, I, I try to always be really um, engaged in learning. Um, and so that I'm always like so in a position where I'm taking uh, guidance from people who I really admire. Um, so I'm always in a relationship with with people and like uh, thinking about being teachable and getting better. Um, but the experience of performing itself has become much more of a spiritual practice in that like I find that there is communion. I think... I think about, um, you know, the, the great, like, androgynous entertainers of our time, uh, like the David Bowie and Annie Lennox of the world, and, like, what... They're not the same person, Annie Lennox, and... The they're Bowie. definitely different people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they, they look the same to me. Yeah. And they always gave me a similar vibe, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, I think about, like, what that the experience of like being of admiring those entertainers did for me, you know? And I think like if I have cultivated the ability to be honest, um, in a way and like kind of live inside of, uh, a truth and like have, uh, a performance that is a reflection of me being able to be vulnerable and like live in my truth, then I think that I'm being of service yeah. to a community that needs that. Cause an audience connects with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, I think that that shift has really, I think been, been maybe one of the greatest benefits of my sobriety is that like, I truly love performing, um, in that it's not a matter of like personal validation anymore. It's really a matter of like celebrating, uh, like intrinsic life 
and community and like bringing people together and like giving people permission to express themselves which i think that like a lot of people really need like they need to be able to like open up live a little bit louder and like know that it's going to be okay yeah um and so i try to do that with my performance just kind of bring something out of people you know yeah yeah um, but I think where we left off uh, <laughs> was a little well, darker than that. Yeah, it was way darker than that. <laughs> a little window. But I, I did. I had just gone to my first meeting, um, and I, I felt better. Um, and I, I went to meetings pretty consistently. I picked up nine months' worth of chips, um, and I broke the the golden rule. Um, you know, I was dating somebody in my first year of recovery, which is a no-no. Um, tisk tisk. Which, you know, like, no one will ever criticize anyone for doing that, really. You know, they might have thoughts, or at least no one ever uh, yeah. said, like, oh, you think that's an okay idea, you know? Yeah, I think that's um, always, like, the thing. I, I I never say don't, but I say, well, I mean, you might want to, you know, maybe give yourself a, a better chance. <laughs> <laughs> I say it's inadvisable in early yeah. recovery to <laughs> be dating. Um, and I, I, I mean, I know why. Yeah. Um. And it's, it's very true. And I think, I think, you know, uh, the circumstances that happen to us, you know, there's, there's some divine guidance because I think that that relationship gave me a lot of accountability to stay sober, Mm. um, at first. Um, but I definitely put a lot of my, uh, motivation for being sober in uh, like another person's hands, you know? Um, and when things got difficult in our relationship and I was afraid that this person would cheat on me, I absolutely drank. Um, and there was nothing stopping me. There was no barrier there. Additionally, in early recovery, I didn't <clears throat> uh, prioritize uh, recovery in any way. So, like, I would skip meetings. I canceled appointments with my therapist. Like, I wasn't really tending to this area of myself that just really needs care. I think, like, whatever kind of um, <clears throat> path that you're uh, working in terms of recovery, like there's like all these Buddhist paths, there's so many things that you can be doing, but if you don't apply yourself to those things really fully, like I think it's, it's really easy to, uh, lose sight of that priority. Mm. Right. Cause like, you know, cancer diseases like this are so much more imminent that like, you know, it, yeah, you, you really know, like when it comes to alcoholism or like addiction of any kind, it's so much more insidious. It's like laying under there. It's like waiting to strike. Um, and it's waiting until you're vulnerable. Mm. And so I got vulnerable. I was afraid that my boyfriend was going to cheat on me. Um, and I went to visit my friend in Los Angeles, the same friend. And I went to the same exact bar that I was at in 2009 and I drank a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this time, you know, it wasn't six and a half years. It was like, I had been really listening in in AA and I, I was like, I'm drinking, but like, I just like, I couldn't, uh, separate myself from the rhetoric you know, um, <clears throat> and I ended up in the, like two weeks later, I was in my apartment in New Orleans, laying on the floor, listening to that same fucking ceiling fan. <laughs> it was like, whoa. And I, I describe it when I talk about my relapse, because I think the most accurate representation is like that scene from the Goonies. Do you know this? Where Martha Plimpton like steps on the rake and like the handle of the rake comes up and it's like got the, like the, I don't know what even is on the end of it, but it's just like this ghoulish thing. Oh, yeah. And she like shrieks <laughs> or whatever. Like that was me relapsing. <laughs> like, ah! and, um, and then you ran in the opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Um, and that was that was the real game changer for me, honestly. Like, I don't think that relapses um, are a requirement for any for any reason, but that really delivered to me that like I was dealing with big business and that I was gonna really need to pull in some big guns to get some help. Um, and so I started working with a woman who, uh, to this day, I continue to work with. Who I just as a personal hero, she's a really amazing, uh, <laughs> gifted, patient person. <laughs> Um, and she was somebody who really imparted on me what it means to be teachable. Um, and she thought, she asked me to think about, uh, to try and be understanding instead of needing to be understood all the time. And that was really helpful advice. And it was the first time that anybody ever given me any, any advice that was like, you should just like not drink. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was the first time that she just like anybody had ever given me any like sort of access points to change, yeah. you know, but that like, is such a great thing to, to say to somebody like, to think about being teachable no the uh the i would try to be understanding understanding the the saint francis prayer right yeah and so i, I didn't know it was the saint francis prayer at all i yeah. just thought that she was really trying to come down on me <laughs> <laughs> you thought that was like yeah it's funny how when i got sober like my sponsor would say things and i thought they were the most brilliant things <laughs> Turns out they're like in a book. Yeah, they're in a book, or like, or people are just saying them all the time in meetings. Like, oh, oh, like my sponsor's a genius. Yeah, yeah, we would pray the set aside prayer, and like it would have been. Have you ever heard it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that, and I thought I was like, man, he came up with that prayer. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> I really thought it was his his gig. I his sage like, wisdom. Yeah, <laughs> okay. blew me away. Yeah, well, I do want to talk a little bit about what I think of um, as sponsorship. I think, you know, so I I started, you know, as a Catholic uh, when I was young. And then, you know, at 25 years old, I became a yoga teacher. And that got me really interested in things like polytheism, just like having different spiritual worldviews. I got really excited about Buddhism and I got into meditation, all those kinds of things. So much so that like when uh, when I first got sober, my sponsor was like, you know, talking about the first step, for instance. And I was like, well, the 11th step is the one that I'm like probably already like really good at. Like, why don't we start there? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I've like, skip all the others. I've, I've been a religious fetishist my entire life, <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out they're like written in order. Yeah. Um, do you, could you do a whole rosary without like referring to, yeah, I could still do it today. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I still have all those Catholic prayers memorized for sure. <laughs> I mean, when I was living in Atlanta and just to like do a little throwback, you know, and I was like really suffering, I would like to have these like long, like two day binges on crystal meth or whatever. And like, I would end up at church at seven in the morning oh, that sounds horrible. on like Peachtree road in a huge cathedral with like, there was like four women who were like maybe 80 and me in like my club clothes and that priest didn't blink at all when i would take that eucharist i would come up and like take communion he was just like here you go you know that's, that's great yeah in hindsight it's just like it's really kind of interesting i think <laughs> being a crackhead in church wow. um but yeah the um the idea of the guru disciple relationship was something that I found really interesting at that time. And I've later shifted my perspective on like that kind of authoritarian power. Um, and one of the things that I really love about the sponsor dynamic that's like designated in Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's a really, it's a peer relationship. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. And like, we kind of, 
um, amplify or give give our uh, sponsors some kind of like um, I don't know a little bit of like leverage. It's, but really, they're just another person who's sick who has a little bit more experience than we do. Yeah. Um, and that that peer resonance, I think, is like a really powerful tool. Um, and so I made it through my uh, my <clears throat> twelve step. Well, I was my first time I tried to sponsor somebody. Uh, I sponsored somebody who I had known, uh, when I was like actively drinking, mm-hmm. um, who had like come into the rooms and was having some trouble. Uh, and I like, he wouldn't stop drinking. And I just thought that I was failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting. And I was able to like talk with my sponsor about it. And she was just like, it's not your job to keep him sober. That's actually not your job at all. <laughs> uh, and that perspective shift was really interesting. It was still really hard uh, to kind of understand. And he ended up uh, going into treatment and he's doing wildly successful today uh, to the point where I could like probably never sponsor him because he's sort of the marrying type. <laughs> <laughs> um, the But my... While that was happening, interestingly, at this intersection, <laughs> is that that's good? That's a yeah, good yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, I was you know sponsoring my first sponsee, and it wasn't working out. I was having a hard time, and I thought like I I relate to this person. Like it's like perfectly primed. It's like perfectly good. And then uh, I was at a meeting, and this guy comes up to me, and he was just like, "Hey, you raised your hand to be a sponsor, or whatever." And I was like, "Yeah." He was like, I need a sponsor. Um, and it ended up being my sponsee, Sam, who I absolutely love. And I brought you some of the things right. today. So I've, there's some memorabilia here. Um, but And I'll get to it. But Sam uh, <clears throat> and I had almost nothing in common. He was, you know, primarily he was super into heroin. Uh, and he was like a married guy. He had a kid. And... Um, you know, for the most part, we didn't necessarily have any sort of reason to get together, you know, like we wouldn't have crossed paths um, in any way. But my relationship with Sam was so profound because it was like based in just this willingness to get better together. Um, And so like we found ways of like uh, communicating that were really profound, really special. Um, And one of the things that Sam was really into was like, he thought that the chip thing was really ridiculous. And I think that the chip thing is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And so he was like, well, if they're really that cool, you should probably get a chip for every day because, you know, it's one day at a time, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I'll make you a deal. And I had a little jar and I said, I'll put a rhinestone in this jar for every day, you know? Um, And he was just, he's such a clever person and like, uh, one of the things that I think I find is really typical of alcoholics is that like we're really intellectually high functioning people. Um, but we have emotional skills that are just like mysteriously stifled. Mm. Um, and for myriad reasons. And I don't, I, it still continues to bewilder me today when I see this phenomenon and people are just like amazing, just genius people. And then we do these sort of like, I don't know, just bizarre behaviors and there's, there's no explanation for it. Um, and so I gave, I gave Sam a rhinestone for every day that he was sober. And then one day we were in a meeting together and, uh, the chip ceremony comes up and he picked up a 24 hour chip 
because he had drank beer the night before, but I had just met with him. Like we had just talked yeah. and all that. Uh, and he just picked up that chip with just like a smile on his face. And he just stared at me the whole time and picked up that chip. And I was like, you <laughs> are such an incredible human being. Cause he like understood what the chips were for. Um, and he also knew that that was his way of being able to tell me that he had made a mistake. And he also knew that I wasn't going to abandon him. Yeah. You know? Um, and so we talked about it afterwards and I was like, what, you know? <laughs> and so That's the next crazy. time we met, I was like, you know, Sam, I got to do this. And I took the jar and I threw out all of the rhinestones. <laughs> and you put one in there. And I put one in there. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, oh, that crushes my soul. And I was like, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, through, uh, you know, some sad circumstances, I did get a call um, a little bit of time later to find out that Sam had died alone in a hotel room. Um, which unfortunately is the case for our people mm. a lot of the times, but that, that relationship is still really sacred to me. Um, I knew Sam for 55 days. And so I have 55 rhinestones that I keep in a really safe place, uh, to remember my friend Sam. Wow. But he, uh, told me at a meeting one time, not at a meeting at, t- at a time when we were getting together that, um, that he, he loved the outsiders and like, uh, he thought of our relationship like pony boy. Um, and so we talked a lot about the whole, whole idea of like nothing gold can stay. Mm. Um, and you know, he, there were just a lot of things that he really loved, um, that were like really true for him. He loved punk music. He's all of that. So it's like, uh, this person gets to kind of live with me today and I have a, a pretty profound relationship. Um, you know, not, I don't talk very frequently with his mother, but, uh, I think that we connected almost immediately, uh, around that time. And I remember I was biking, uh, down the Lafitte Greenway. I was heading to teach my yoga class and someone, there was like a boxing gym, um, over that way. And someone had spray painted the wall of the boxing gym and I said, tell my mother, I love her. And so I took a picture of it and I sent it to his mom, uh, and then I wrote a little note with that. And so she made cards of those and handed them out as a, his memorial service. Um, but I think about those sort of interesting, like idiosyncrasies and those messages, those things kind of come for us um, inside those really sacred relationships. But <clears throat> I also learned from that experience that like, you know, one, it's not my job to keep anybody sober, um, but that like I, can profoundly love someone no matter what they do. Yeah. Um, and that, that has been a gift ever since, um, just realizing that like, uh, love and service are like the lifeblood of why I have a reasonably happy life most of the time. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of like toss that down, but I had I have a couple of buttons for you. One of them says, uh, give two shits and it's got a little peace sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is sort of the, I could give two shits. Yeah. But then give them. <laughs> <laughs> and this one says, uh, Sam black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and, and stay gold, stay gold. Pony. Yeah. Boy. It's funny. I, that's, that's the, uh, cause in high school I wasn't, I wasn't much of a reader. <laughs> you were busy doing other things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not reading. <laughs> and, uh, we had to read 
the uh, the outsiders. Yeah, you know, I think it's a standard reading in a lot of schools, or or maybe not. But uh, I just found the book a, a weekend ago. Where did I find it? Through, I mean, it it was we were going through a lot of the old um, stuff at my dad, and my mom's old house. Uh, and my 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 sister came up to me and it had my name in it, uh, and I, I I only book I read in high school watched the movie and I can't for the life of me remember any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember really liking it though. Yeah, yeah it's, it's probably time to reread it. Yeah, I should reread it. I actually gave it to my girlfriend because we had talked about it. Because <laughs> we had talked about because <laughs> like this is really good. You should read it. Yeah, I remember <laughs> I remember thoroughly enjoying it. Because whenever we, uh, whenever we first met, I was, I had this small period of my life where I, I really liked reading historical novels, which was over a decade ago. But when we met, I said, "Oh yeah, I really like reading historical novels." But that was like, <laughs> currently that wasn't the truth. <laughs> so then when we kept dating, she's like, she said, "You know what? You you told me you really liked reading historical novels." Like she just like mentioned to me how I presented this fake character to her on our first date. And, uh, and then we, and we mentioned that book. I don't know why I'm going on this aside, but <laughs> that book has, has presented itself in my life recently. Yeah. Um, well, that's a perfect tangent. Cause it's like those synchronicities are, yeah, are super major. And they're, they're interesting. Definitely. You know, cause I hadn't thought about that book in forever. Um, well, I just like, you know, I'm not, um, when I was, when I was drinking and using, like, you know, despite the fact that, like, I would be really, like, wasted and feeling really guilty and sorry, sorry about myself, I was really never available to see things, like, uh, simple, like, synchronicities and things like that as sort of, like, a spiritual message or anything, anything in that way. And I think that, you know, now that I live a life that's sort of based in evidence of, like, taking suggestions, being teachable and doing things a different way than normally I would. Um, I have this like access to uh, be able to kind of receive those insights, Yeah, you know, whereas like I never had that before, no matter how much meditation I practiced, you know, and I, I lived in Arkansas when I was a young kid for a brief amount of time. We went to this like fire and brimstone Baptist church, like all these messages, all these sort of like um, really dramatic flair, like all this sort of like uh religious performance and like ecstatic experiences or whatever, they all like really spoke to me and I was really interested in them. And I thought all kinds of things about like psychedelic drugs and all kinds of stuff. And I have to say that like doing what I, what I call the most punk rock thing, which is like being sober (laughs) (laughs) that I just have this profound ecstatic experience of living and that I'm not like Like separating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I'm able to kind of tap into just like uh, an experience of like uh, how things sort of like weave themselves together in these like magical ways. Yeah. And like, you know, that the, there's this profound uh, influence, this profound like, um, uh, like force in, in the world that exists and it somehow has my best interest in mind and I don't really understand it, wow. but it's not my job to understand it. It's just and our just, job to be like open and aware to, yeah. to notice it and, and, and maybe insert ourselves in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Martha Graham has this really famous quote that kind of talks about this. Like she says like, 
the currents and the divine forces that like uh that we she says we have to it's our job to be a channel that we have to keep the channel open uh we have to be aware keep aware to the urges that motivate us um and that like no artist is ever satisfied there's no satisfaction ever uh there's just this queer divine dissatisfaction that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others wow yeah martha graham is pretty cool wow she, she's speaking specifically of artists i'm just gonna go ahead and call myself an artist yeah go ahead <laughs> you're welcome you, I, I, I if you need permission <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think of myself as an artist to a degree uh but you're right though the it's the I always I, I like to it's not like i if i pray for something to happen and then i notice something happened it happened because i prayed it just I prayed for something to happen and really all that happened is my awareness opened up and I saw something that was going to happen or was always happening yeah. anyways. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like yeah. those things have kind of been going on all along, you know? Yeah. I used to think that like in my life that I had this, what I called an olive oil complex. Do you know this? No. Like, have I ever <laughs> talked about this with you? No. It's like, um, the scenes from, uh, Popeye and olive oh, oil okay. when she would sleepwalk through the construction site and like she would like turn a corner and there was like always a beam there, you oh, know, yeah. and like somehow through like my drunken drug addict <laughs> life, like I seemed to just like always make sure there was like a next beam. I had never really like, um, you know, like fallen off. Like, I mean, I didn't die, yeah. you know, and there, I'm really super grateful today for that. Um, and like <clears throat> that, uh, <laughs> just like that precarious way of being, um, is just so so interesting um but i think about it now because like the you know i <clears throat> i'm in a relationship with the divine presence i think about source a lot i think you know i i think about my spiritual experience coming from like a lot of the paths that have come up throughout humanity um and all of them talk about some kind of concept of universal love um but at the same time when i look back over the course of my life like this Thing, this force has always been looking after me yeah it's just like i've just was never paying attention yeah and you were just like drunkenly walking through the world <laughs> with like weird sort of faith and then the beam was always there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i think it's funny i think that there's uh a chapter in the big book that talks about this the spiritual experience being like if you don't believe in god like you then it believes in you or whatever. It's a sort of <laughs> or like, yeah, like the, like what I just said, the, the part that says like we had strangely been living by some kind of faith all along. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, so what, um, so what's, uh, so what's your life look like today? Um, just in general yeah. with your sobriety or just, um, you know, I mean, I know we've already kind of talked about you're, you're doing, you're producing stuff, which you're going to send me some scripts possibly. <laughs> so I can, so I can audition. We're going to launch your career. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, do, I, I regularly attend meetings. That's something that I do. I'm in school full time. Mm -hmm. um, so I had that year in school in 2003 um, and I, I never finished and it was sort of a scourge. Um, and so for the last year I've been in school full time and like coming to that experience as an adult has been really interesting and it's really frustrating to be in school. Um, 
but I'm, I'm able to handle those frustrations in a way that I, sometimes I'm like, who am I, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I'm able to, to make art. Um, and like, I don't really worry. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a student and I'm an artist, uh, and I'm a yoga teacher. So you can take all those things, smush them together and you have a very, uh, not a lot of income. <laughs> a lot you of know. yeah, struggling um, students, struggling artists. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to and I used to have a lot of rage around not not having a lot of income or yeah. you know, or running out of money all the time or this or that. And I just have to say like the the experience of like not having a lot of income uh I'm still able to like live within my means and like there it's the relationship to happiness isn't like uh, contingent on like how much flow I have, which like, I think that's a miracle of just the way that I'm living today that like feels really good that like, it's more important to me to be able to like live in truth and connect with others. And like, I'm not just like consuming hours at work in order to like turn like time into dollars. Yeah. Um, they say like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I like that, you know, I think, you know, as a small business owner, it's like, you're never not working, really. No, it's always, yeah. But it's like... There's nothing I would... I mean, whenever I just spend time on that bike stand working on bikes, it's just... It's, it's very zen for me. Like meditation, the, yeah. The part I don't like is, like, crunching numbers and files, filing stuff and <laughs> the managerial part of the whole thing, yeah. which is very necessary. Um, <laughs> but I get... You know, and the, I, I find that even doing this, which I love... Um, I get, I get, um, very, I get fearful and I find that the fear comes from trying to do it all on my own. Yeah. Um, and feeling like I have to, um, like I have to, to put on this, this, this image of like successful businessman who is, doesn't have anything, any issues and that if you ask me how it's going, everything's going fine. Uh, and yeah. if something's not going fine, just being very unwilling to say something to somebody or talk to somebody about it or bring it up or ask for help, you know? And the idea that, that if I don't do it on my own, if I don't do it all by myself, then it somehow loses its value. <laughs> or, it's not, or it's not valid. Yeah. You know? Is that true or untrue? That's very untrue, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but that happens, you know, and I get into that mode and I get fearful and the ego kind of keeps me from doing what I know I have to do or what I know is going to be helpful, which is being open, you know, um, you said something earlier that, that resonated with me about being open. It's just, and that I read in a book, which I try to read a little bit now, (laughs) Um, and it was, um, and the, and I forget the whole sentence, but it was something about being, knowing that I can afford to be open, like that, yeah. I, can afford, that I can afford it and that I, that it's okay that I can be open and, and, and it's fine. But like that's, there's that part of me that tells me that I can't afford to be open. There's that part of me that tells me to don't. You have to be certain. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. tricky. I think that that relates to, I guess, maybe the the area of my life that I'm uh, starting to figure out a little bit more, which I think is also something that 
is worth talking about that's an interesting part of recovery is just like sex and dating Hmm. um and like i'm in a spot where i don't necessarily feel like um sex and dating is a priority for me but i'm definitely getting a little long in the tooth and i'd like to maybe like settle down and have a person in my life who uh you know is on the other side of the conversation or someone at least to split the bills with yeah (laughs) (laughs) that'd be nice um and like that, that's been an interesting journey just because, you know, um, dating and sobriety is challenging just because I think so much dating is contingent on, uh, like going out for drinks or keeping things casual, things like that. Um, in addition to the fact that I just have like a profound set of standards now, yeah. <laughs> it made it very easy to get laid before I had standards. Um, <laughs> But now I have some, uh, you know, some relationship ideals that are very, um, really interesting. And uh, I guess what I want to kind of impart or like start a conversation around is that like I had always upon like looking over my past experience and really detailing it, I had always been willing to be in a relationship with anybody who would have me. Mm. I never really took the time to like think about what kind of person I wanted to be in a relationship with. And what kind of person I wanted to be inside of a relationship. And I think that recovery and especially my relationship with my super sage gifted sponsor um, is like uh, given me the opportunity to look at those things. Mm. Whereas I, I think that people who aren't in recovery don't get that opportunity. Yeah. Um, and now I, I kind of have a, some some guidance in terms of like what I'm what I'm looking for and what I want, yeah. what I'm, you know. Um, and so I'm finding that. There's no shortage of Peter Pan complexes in in New Orleans, uh, oh. and like <laughs> what, forever young types. Yeah, <laughs> uh, then I don't ever want to grow up, kind of types. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's a really interesting sort of journey, um, because even I think a lot of people um, don't explore the experience of sex and dating from a sober perspective, or yeah. at least we don't talk about it a lot. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't date for a long time. Um, yeah. Actually, whenever you were saying how you dated immediately, uh, and how you what did you say? Uh, divine. <laughs> you said there was like a divine hand in it or something. What did you oh, say? Oh yeah. Well, I th- I want to expand on that a little bit because you know I that relationship you know uh, like was pretty codependent. Yeah. You know, and like, that's not ideal and not super awesome. But like, I do think that there was a divine hand in that like, that's one of the things that it took to really get, you needed. get me some sobriety. Yeah. You know? And, and I, and I totally, that resonates with me. I, what I always tend to say is, uh, when I got sober, I was, I had to, uh, God, my higher power gave me two gifts, <laughs> the gift of, and, and, and I think it's funny. I don't know why I think it's funny, but, it really doesn't flow well, but I say he gave me the gift of desperation and the gift of no game. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow. That's really good. Cause, <laughs> because I didn't have any game at all. <laughs> I, if I would speak, speaking to a lady was incredibly difficult for me. And, and when I first got sober and, and, and just anybody in general, it was very hard to let alone a lady, you know, I, I wasn't, and, and, and I'd see like other people who got sober early and got into early relationships and I'd be envious, <laughs> you know, 
and and I wanted I wanted to like be having sex and and, and, <laughs> and doing all these things. Right, it took me a little while to get some to, to you know to, to get in the sack with anybody when I was sober. And um, <laughs> but I don't know if I would have been if I would have been able to snag something. Um, that would have been. I don't know that I would have been able to handle mm-hmm. the 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 emotion and the everything that comes along with it. Yeah. Um, well, and I I have to say that like dealing with losing that relationship, which it did, you know, it, it yeah. ended. Um, that was something that really gutted me yeah. in recovery. Um, and like, oof, I like I remember you know finding out that. Uh, my ex-partner was dating someone new and I like dropped my phone and I howled. There was like uh, a thing, something like that was like so animal and so deep inside me that it's like other relationships don't do that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something like that's really intense about the sexual or romantic relationships that like, uh, you know, motivate our behavior in ways that are beyond just like typical. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> but I love uh, that you have no game. I can say that I, I, I identify with that sentiment quite a bit, but I think for me, it's that like, um, I'm so used to being in, uh, relationships or conversations with people who are totally comfortable talking about, um, some deeper concepts, you know, like I talk about spirituality a lot or like, you know, malformed coping mechanisms, you know? So like, when you're in a context, you're, you're always hanging out with people who are more or less trying to like get better together. You're kind of working some stuff out and you, you end up talking about some pretty deep stuff. That's not really, you know, lunch counter conversation <laughs> for most people. Yeah. And as a result, I find sometimes that, um, it's not, uh, that I'm unrelatable because I don't drink. It's that sometimes I, uh, I don't know how to have small talk. Yeah. You know, that like it always I'm, has to be profound. Well, I'm so used to yeah. having meaningful connection with people or at least being open and willing to meaningful yeah. connection that I think that that um, might be intimidating for people. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. I know that I know that like having these types of conversations in the beginning were like amazing to me. You know? <laughs> I had. And that's really like part of what prompted me to want to do this. I remember thinking, man, some of the conversations I've had based around recovery are, they're just like some of the best conversations I've ever had. (laughs) And, and you leave them feeling lifted and, 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 you know, and, and stimulated. And I remember thinking, man, because I had gotten into listening to podcasts as well. And I was, and, you know, I'd listen to some that were like three hours long. And I I (laughs) thought, man, if, if, if I could, if somebody should capture like these recovery conversations on a podcast, that would be really good. And I'm sure somebody else has done it. I'm not like, you know, <laughs> saying, but like, so I, I went out and I bought equipment and, and I kept it for years and didn't touch it uh, and didn't use it at all until recently. I was just like, I'm just going to start doing it. Um, but yeah, with, uh, on the relationship tip, like I, so I've, I, you know, and then it slowly took me a while to like, okay, you know, I was so afraid of being rejected. Mm-hmm. That was a big fear, right? And and the fear of that kept me from even stepping in, the, like putting my foot in the water. And then I finally, I told myself, hey, you're gonna have, you're gonna have to feel, re- you're gonna have to get rejected. Yeah, <laughs> it's part of the process. Yeah, you're gonna have to <laughs> just do it, right? Ex- experience like what it's like to go on a date and 
her not want to go on a second date, you know, experience what it's like to message with a girl on Tinder and, and, and then the messages stop or she unmatches you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like all those things, like, because like the whole process for me is very awkward. I, I, I'm operating from like my, my, my lizard brain. So, so, it's, <laughs> uh, so nothing comes out right. It's just, it's just chaos. Right. And, 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 and really in a lot of my areas of my life, I, I, I improved, you know, I was improving. I was, I, I was becoming more confident um, uh, uh, just in general with people, with, with my abilities, with, with my, my, you know, at work and, uh, within, within that one area relationships, um, no progress, <laughs> none. Um, and I think, you know, and this is maybe for another podcast or what, or whatever, maybe not, but like, <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing way too much talking and it's, <laughs> uh, but I feel like there was definitely like, there's, there's still some trauma from past experiences that just, just dial up immediately when I, when, when in those situations. Um, so, but it took for me to like, kind of like just experience those things that I was so afraid of experiencing yeah. over and over and over again sometimes. Well, and I think, you know, just to jump in the, our experiences being in relationship as like drug addicts and alcoholics is that like we were in these deeply problematic relationships usually with not super awesome people. Mm. Um, but like, and you know, from my experience, a lot of, uh, you know, we learn what loving and healthy relationships look like from the world about us, yeah. you know? And like, um, I think most people put the fun and dysfunctional when it comes to their, um, like upbringing and like, we don't necessarily have a lot of, um, I don't know, like a lot of uh, cultural references that are based in reality. You know, I think that most of us uh, come of age with sort of like a TV idea of romance and like a family home life that doesn't necessarily match that TV idea. So it's like when we develop in this way, you know, we become adults and like we sort of fumble into these like problematic relationships. And, you know, unfortunately for alcoholics and addicts a lot of that comes with like resentment rage and sometimes violence and mm. things like that and then it's like we're so raw and vulnerable as like sober people that it's just like the only map that we've ever made to being in relationship is full of fire yeah and it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how to how to have some emotional intelligence you know yeah. and now that i feel like i've uh, stabilized in that way I find that people who don't have a recovery context and don't have the, the gift of desperation or um, this experience uh, are in many ways are uh, kind of disconnected from that access to emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you were saying that earlier, how we, we, we lack in the emotional part, but I think that going through the process of the gift of desperation and then doing those things actually give us a leg up yep. in the emotional intelligence realm, you know? For sure. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and to circle back to Sam, I think that he, uh, just as a person had this, uh, sort of psychic knowing there was like this gentle and abiding love that like always existed, uh, in throughout like all of his interactions. So like he didn't necessarily communicate in words, but there was like this, uh, presence I think that he really taught me how to have like a baseline of like love and trust and like 
I think that my experience of working with him for the 55 days that I know that I knew him are remain sacred today um, for that reason that like I know how to be in relationship in that way because he taught me. Wow. That's beautiful. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a, do you have a burning desire? I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, and, and I've, in uh, uh, so I, I've been ending the podcast with the question, um, and mainly because I'm trying to find a cool way, a, 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 a nice, neat way to land it. But also, I thought that this question is very relevant in the sense that, like, if I think about my own experience and I go, okay, what can I tell myself as the the guy who is, uh, you know, desperate and done with 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 living. Um, if I encountered him, I would give him relevant advice. And I think that if I encounter, if I give relevant advice to myself when I'm coming in, that's pretty relevant to anybody who's coming in. Uh, so I just, so I just feel like, and, and not everybody has answered the question with really profound, (laughs) (laughs) but basically the question is, uh, what would you tell yourself? Uh, if you encountered yourself, um, as the person who was coming in this last time before you got sober, um, um, whether it be to as you would tell somebody who's coming in for the first time anybody really yeah but what would you tell yourself specifically um, I think the things that I needed to know um, and, and I think it's specific because I'm a double winner and that one is that the um everybody has the una- like an unalienable right to make mistakes just to know that I've made mistakes and I can answer for them and that that's possible, mm. you know, like that there is redemption, um, in some way there's some, there's a solution, right? Like it's going to be okay. Um, but I really needed to know that the things that happened to me, the circumstances of my life, uh, were not my fault. Mm. You know, there were a lot of things that were happened to me by external forces, um, and I internalized them a lot and I'm, I made a world where it seemed like I was a broken person. Um, and that's simply not true. Um, I was pretty broken down, uh, but with a little bit of help, I was able to get together, get it, get it together. Um, but yeah, it's definitely that old like saying, like you don't eat the fruit on the day you plant the seed. Wow. You know? Yeah. All right. Yeah. The inalienable right to make a mistake. I'll remember that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, AJ.